Thank you for joining our Transform 365 podcast, a discipleship and teaching ministry of SWCC. We pray this teaching helps you to grow in your journey with Christ. We have some great resources available for you on Transform365.com webpage. Feel free to download discipleship materials, small group teaching, as well as peruse our training workshops. Also take time to visit www.swcc.org for videos, teaching, and more. We thank you for listening and your support, and we would love to hear from you. So use our contact page and drop us a line. Now, for our podcast teaching. Well, Dr. Wallace, you've documented and chronicled many New Testament texts, uh, manuscripts, um, apostolic fathers' writings, uh, because those are uh, there's there's quite a few out there as well, and um, you know they they would quote a lot of verses to one another, which is always really neat and encouraging to read and see. Um, based on what we have in their letters as a reference, and the oldest text, how close uh, do you believe we are to the original letters um, and and just the original texts? Uh, how how close do you think we are? So are you relating that to the apostolic fathers or just uh, to... yeah just just everything that you have put your eyes on now right and um yeah. so um because you know they 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 quote and yeah they they loosely quote each other some you know scripture sometimes you know as they're writing you know in the early period especially yeah yeah you know polycarp writing to somebody he might not be doing a quote for quote uh of what john was saying but right you know it's it's you know he's he's giving it right he's still laying it out there yeah but how close do you think we are to um, the original when it comes down to it? Well, let's talk about what the evidence is first and then how scholars look at that. And then I can give you uh, yeah. my response to all this. In terms of the external evidence, the material evidence, we have over 5,500 Greek New Testament manuscripts in existence today. Wow. And my little organization, CSNTM, has uh, been around for 21 years. And we, uh, our, our initial purpose is to digitize every single Greek New Testament manuscript on earth and post those images online for scholars to see so that they out, now they can compare all the data and work to get back to the original. So uh, we don't have the original manuscripts anymore. They must have turned to dust within a century of having been written. And uh, I, I'm convinced of that because they were copied so frequently. It was the lifeblood of the church. Some scholars think they must have lasted hundreds of years. Uh, Craig Evans has especially uh, promoted that view. But that was true for classical texts that are not copied a lot. The New Testament was the lifeblood of the church. People find out about, you know, you, you're from Rome and you're going to go visit Corinth and you say, hey, I hear that Paul wrote you guys a couple letters. Can, uh, can we uh, copy those? Yeah, sure. They didn't revere them as scripture yet. They just revered it as a great letter for Paul, and anybody could come and copy that out. So you get that kind of process going over and over and over and over again. And after a while, those originals are going to turn to dust. But then you've got multiple copies of that very first thing then that becomes spread out in uh, a number of other copies. So uh, we don't have the originals. Uh, they've turned to, uh, they've disappeared. And any two manuscripts... There's even our closest two manuscripts from the first eight centuries disagree with each other 
uh, about eight times per chapter. P75 and B, or Vaticanus. You extrapolate that out for the Holy Testament, that would be about 3,000 variants, something like that. So 2,000 variants, I guess. It'd be a lot. Um, and uh, you think along these lines, you say, gee, how do we re recover the original? Well, the manuscripts do another thing for us. In 1707, uh, John Mill, a scholar who worked at Oxford his whole career, spent 30 years working on one book. And uh, it was a Greek New Testament, a very large volume, with an apparatus where he lists all the variants he knew from the 99 manuscripts he had access to. And he looked at all those. He looked at ancient translations. He was a polymath. He knew a lot of languages. He looked at the Church Fathers' writings and put all this in the apparatus. Now, the text that was printed was the same text that the King James translators used, uh, and that was that was the standard text, even though scholars very early on recognized that it was it had a lot of problems with it. Even Erasmus, when he put it together, said that uh, in 1516. So John Mill does this, and he finds 30,000 textual variants on the basis of just 99 manuscripts. But what happened was two weeks later to the day after that, he died. Perfect timing. Get your magnum opus done, and then depart this earth when the critics start coming up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so six years later, there was Richard Bentley at Cambridge University who defended uh, Bentley's work. Now, the Catholics were having a heyday about this. There was just so much fun for them because they said, look, our pope speaks ex cathedra, and he doesn't have any contradictions. Yours might say one thing in the text, but the footnotes, he says something else. You know, you have your paper pope, mm. but what is he actually saying? So they were trying to show this kind of study of the New Testament and the authority of the New Testament itself was in vain. Yeah. Now, there were fundamentalist Protestants who also sort of thought it was not a helpful thing because they said the Doing this kind of research is the work of the devil. Historical research is never the work of the devil. Yeah. Trying to get at the truth is always a divine activity, if you're in, in, in one very broad sense. They wouldn't have liked and, Luke. <laughs> what's that? They wouldn't have liked Luke. Yeah, right. That's true. <laughs> so um, what, what uh, Bentley went on to say is, would we be in a better condition now than... Uh, than we were then when Erasmus uh, published his Greek New Testament based on just eight manuscripts. Yeah. He said, if we had only one manuscript at the beginning of learning three, uh, 200 years ago, that is, if Erasmus had just published one manuscript, is that going to help us get back to the original better than having uh, eight? Or in this instance, we've got 99 manuscripts and 30,000 variants, we are in so much of a better uh, situation to determine what the original wording is. Mm -hmm. It's it's amazing. Uh, so uh, he said it, it gives us more anchors, more security, the more manuscripts we have. I, I like to use the illustration of if I were to give a lecture, and, I, and I, I've got to do this one of these days. It's just that I can't do it with a single group. Say 50 people in a room, and I start reading something to them that um, they've never heard before. And I ask everyone to copy out what I'm saying. And I asked them to do it in silence as it was done at 
monasteries when you're copying. And uh, then I asked them to turn it in, and I'll look at every one of those. And I might get an assistant to look at every one of those, someone who knows texture criticism. Even though they're all contemporaneous, they don't all say the same thing. There's yeah. going to be spelling differences, punctuation differences, paragraphing differences, if that's what, what's going on. There's going to be words missing, words added. Uh, there's going to be uh, word order changes. And I think that someone could determine exactly what I wrote on the basis of all those corrupted manuscripts by finding out there's going to be a stream of certain manuscripts that are better than others that are consistently spot on. And if you find that two or three manuscripts that agree with each other almost all the time, because they're contemporaneous, those are going to be better than the others. So, you know, this, this is a, what, what Bentley was saying was to have more manuscripts helps us to recover the text better because we can compare them to each other. And now to have earlier manuscripts does that in some huge ways. There are four kinds of textual variants that we have in the manuscripts. And I'll talk, you want me to talk about some specific ones that might raise an eyebrow, I guess, huh? Sure. Is that, yeah. is that what you want? Okay. Yeah. Uh, sure. I, I looked at the variants in, in these ways. I, it's, it's through uh, a matrix of meaningful and viable. Meaningful means that it changes the meaning in the text in some way. And, and by that, it's a very loose definition. If it's uh, just a different word that means the same thing, like Jesus versus Lord in John 4.1, yeah. that is a meaningful uh, variant. In fact, it's a very significant variant. Uh, because when does Je John call Jesus Lord until his resurrection, you know, directly? It doesn't, it's pretty rare. So um, it, it helps us understand things, but still, Jesus and Lord are the same person. Nowhere do we have a manuscript that says, now when Peter knew. <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't go in that direction. So meaningful and viable. Viable means that it, it at least has a plausible chance of representing the original wording. You're not going to find that in a very late single manuscript all by itself. It's going to be found in the earlier manuscripts, the ones that have a proven pedigree. And it's going to be found by comparing these manuscripts in terms of the internal evidence uh, which I'll get to in a second. So, uh, most of our variants are neither meaningful nor viable. That's about 70% of them. 70% of these one and a half million variants, they're not meaningful, they're not viable. Then you've got a ton that are uh, not viable, but they may be meaningful. Mm -hmm. But if they're not viable, it doesn't change the text. And then you've got a, quite a few that are meaningful, but not viable. I mean, or maybe I switch those. There's meaningful and not viable. There's viable and not meaningful. Those two together. So, like meaningful and not viable would be the one you used on the horse, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. In a sense, that's meaningful, except it's more of a joke. But anyway, yeah, it made sense. It made sense, you <laughs> yeah. know. And stuff. Yeah. Okay, if you want to say we became horses among you, that might be yeah. really a mixed-up metaphor. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no way it goes back to the original. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Um, but uh, the smallest category by far is those variants that are both meaningful and viable. It is two tenths, two tenths of one percent of all the variants mm -hmm. are both meaningful and viable. 
Now, that small group, which is what the scholars are always debating, there's still hundreds of them. How many of them affect any cardinal doctrine of the, uh, the faith? Zero. Not one. It's, 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 it's absolutely secure. Even Bart Ehrman said this. In, in misquoting Jesus, uh, yeah, misquoting Jesus, his book that came out in 2005, uh, he, he gives the impression, this, this is a, almost a standard textbook in Christianity, our university campuses now. Uh, I'm sure over a million copies have been sold. Within the first three months of this book, 100,000 had been called. He sold. He got on John Stewart's Daily Show, and then his book was perched atop Amazon, number one book on Amazon for a while. Uh, and so after a few months of, of selling this, uh, the editors wanted to keep the, the sales going, so they decided to make it a paperback and add some comments in an appendix. Now, in Ehrman's book, he gives you the impression that these variants destroy a lot of doctrines. And if you think that the original New Testament is the same as we have today, uh, this, this is the impression you get from reading his book then you're sadly mistaken. We have no idea what it is, and the, they do change the text in many and significant ways. Now, in the paperback edition where the editors asked him a question, here's how they read his book. They said, so why do you disagree with your professor, Dr. Bruce Metzger, who was a fine evangelical textual critic, about the nature of these variants? Why do you believe that essential doctrines are changed in the variants. They didn't ask him if he believed that, but they said why. So the why means we know what you said in this book. Yeah. And apparently they didn't because he said, um, essential doctrines are not affected by the textual variants in the measures. Page 252 of the paperback edition of Misquoting Jesus. When the question was put directly to him, now all this all these side trails and rabbit trails and, and innuendos that come throughout his book, when it's put to him directly, he can't think of any. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So he, 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 he's kind of the elo eloquent anti-Christian um, apologist out there. But uh, I, 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 I did a review of his book called uh, The Gospel According to Bart. And it was in uh, the Journal of Evangelical Theological Society, where I, I said, Bart's been a long friend. We, we've known each other for 40 years, but um, he claims to be a master teacher, does some of these great courses, you know, and he's a good teacher, I understand, in the classroom. But a master teacher doesn't create chicken littles. A master teacher is going to get people to, okay, uh, I have to wrestle with this. But you don't want people just going off and, and just hundreds of thousands of kids that have come from Christian homes have left the faith yeah. because of his writings. Yeah, that's um, that's a pretty significant thing. The Great Judgment, <clears throat> kind of like a a straw man uh, argument that he's creating. That there is this you know big doctrinal shifts in the book, and then once he's asked flat out, it's kind of well, there's not really anything that changes. Yeah. yeah, you have to parse his words carefully. Yeah, to see exactly what he's saying. Yeah. So, how many times have you debated um, Bart Ehrman? Three okay. times. Three times. Yeah. When and when you guys finished debating, I know you you just mentioned that you're you've been friends with him for forty years. Like, um, do you come out? You know, I got him this time, or, <laughs> or you know, no, we go out. We'll, we'll go out and have dinner together. Oh, okay. Um, and 
But what did you guys talk about the debate? Or you guys, what do you guys, you know, like, how did, I don't know. You tell me. We, we talked about it some, but um, in, in our first debate in New Orleans, afterwards, which was sponsored uh, by, it's called the Greer Herd. Um, I can't, uh, can't remember, Greer Herd series or something like that, but two businessmen, I understand one is a non-Christian. I may be wrong on that, but these two men started this whole thing at uh, New Orleans Baptist Seminary for once a year to have the best conservative scholar debate, the best liberal scholar on a particular theme. The first year was N.T. Wright and John Dominic Crossan on the resurrection of Christ. Mm. From there, it's all been downhill. You know, uh, there was, I think the third year was uh, Alistair McGrath debated Daniel Dennett, a, a world famous uh, atheist on uh, who, who sees everything is in, uh, th there's no purpose in life beyond just what you see in front of you. Uh, and he's, he looks like Charles Darwin, same beard, same rounded head, all intentional uh, yeah. as a way to make uh, him, him look like he's in that ballpark. And they, they debated whether God existed. Then Bart and I debated in the fourth, uh, fourth one. Um, I also debated him at uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And that debate in 2011 was sponsored by my organization, CSNTM. Now, CSNTM has no theological uh, statements that they're holding. It's, it's just a research institute. Mm -hmm. um, so I, because I was representing CSNTM, I wasn't going to bring in any arguments from my faith. I argued exclusive, exclusively from the evidence. Mm. And when the debate was done, the, the, it, it was filmed, videoed. Two hours for the debate, back and forth, people asking questions and exit interviews of uh, the people attended. There were about, my, my guess is it looked like about 40, 45% of the people were hostile. That, that would be on Bart's side. They, they, um, a lot of the people had t-shirts that said Muslim or atheist or something like that. And uh, in the exit interviews, uh, I asked the people, the photographers, the videographers, to make sure to get a balance of people who said that Bart won and those who said that I won. I've never actually seen this whole thing except once in, in Rough Cut. And uh, I was furious. I went to the, the, uh, their studio and they showed the Rough Cut of it. And uh, I said, why don't you have anybody who said Bart Ehrman won the debate? And they said, well, we'd come up to a Muslim or an atheist or somebody who obviously was on his side, and they didn't want to talk to us. They didn't find one that would be willing to talk to that said Bart won the debate. Wow. But one guy actually said, normally it's the conservative who really is doctrinaire, but this time the liberal was very doctrinaire, and Wallace was looking at these things far more nuanced and saying, you know, there's, there's fudge room here and there. And uh, so... Um, anyway, that's that's a good thing to show to your friends. Yeah, it's you can get it at CSNTM and have a party with non-Christians. Watch this debate. Have a pizza party and get a lot of beer so they're going to sit there and, and uh, enjoy the time. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, smoke cigars, have a great time with them. It's great for a Sunday school class. It's great for non-Christians to do. I, I think there's it's been viewed about five hundred thousand times now. So, wow. 
Yeah, we'll so, we'll, uh, we'll find that, and and obviously we'll drop the link to CSMTN. Uh, no, I would I would appreciate if you yeah. also mention on CSMTN uh, just the link to donate. Yeah, uh, we've got uh, lots of expeditions that we've already gone on this year, and many more planned for next year. We have the people, we have the training people, we have the places to go. We even have contracts. What we don't have though is the funding to go it's, it's this has been a really bad year for nonprofits, mm. and uh, it's it's drying up um so we actually need eight hundred thousand dollars by the end of the year to put us in a place where we can continue on these expeditions without um worrying if we have any money in the bank yeah so it's uh yeah. 401k i mean it's uh what is it uh uh, it's, it's tax deductible. It's yeah. a legal nonprofit with the U.S. government. And and kind of going into you know your ministry with uh, CSMTN, which is the Center for Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Um, why do you think finding Greek, Hebrew, Coptic, Aramaic, Latin texts, manuscripts, and letters and finding them, documenting them, um, you know, you guys take the digital copies. Um, why do you think this is so important? Um, you know, you you guys uh, spend a lot of time um, and uh, just really, um, it, it takes a lot to do. Like, like you're saying, you're flying all over the world, um, you know, spending hours to, to do this. Why is that so important to um, you know, just so people know exactly, you know, what this is and, and, and what your ministry does in that. I'll give you a story. It happened in 1940. Hitler uh, invaded Albania. And in the mountains of Albania uh, was uh, a monastery on Mount Barat. In that monastery, there was a Greek New Testament, it's called a Purple Codex, a manuscript of the Gospels. The manuscript had been dyed purple, written on parchment, dyed purple. All the words for God, all the words God, Lord, Jesus, and Christ were written in gold ink, everything else in silver ink. Originally, it was absolutely gorgeous. All this stuff has, has faded, but there's only a few, hand, uh, just a handful of these manuscripts that uh, we have in the world. So Hitler sent a general up there, and the general brought some soldiers, and they lined all the old men of the village up, along with the, the monks, and they aimed their guns up and said, tell us where this manuscript is, or you will die. So they asked the first man, I don't know. They asked the second man, I really don't know, right on down the line. And then there was a very tense time of a few minutes. The general was consulting with his soldiers. And then they packed up and left. They believed the guys. Wow. The next day, after the abbot, who was the, the head of the monastery, came back from the villages and surrounding areas that he had been in, he had a long line of old men and monks outside his office ready to confess their sins for having lied to the Nazis. <laughs> they were willing to die yeah. for a copy of the Gospels in Greek, where none of these men knew that language. The monks probably did, but the old men didn't. And it was hidden under the sacristy in the, in the 
monster. We actually, I actually got this story directly from this monster became a museum and she is the director of the museum. And we, we drove up to the mountain Barat when we were photographic manuscripts in the capital Tirana in Albania. And, um, at the end of World War II, the communists got all these manuscripts and deposited them in that um, uh, the, the National Library, and we we photographed all those, including this particular manuscript. But uh, I think about that a lot, and I think here are these old guys who are willing to give up their lives for a book they can't even read; mm. they don't know the language. How much more should we be doing a minimal thing of digital preservation? for all of scripture scripture is sacred it's the word of god and you think about how muslims t uh, treat the quran and uh, you discover that if, if you burn a quran you know that's going to cause a war in the middle east you know like one yeah. u.s soldier did and uh they burn bibles all the time mm -hmm. we don't think anything about it the word of god is precious to us it has to be and every single one of these manuscripts is from an individual scribe who pours in weeks and months and sometimes years to write this. And you see the humanity of the scribe on every page, both by the mistakes they make and how they try to give helps to readers. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. The, the, the manuscripts have all sorts of things that help readers know where they are in the New Testament long before chapter and verse divisions. There were ways to read these manuscripts. And uh, there's commentaries. You have a manuscript, you might have a commentary by origin that's uh, wrapped around on three sides of the biblical text that's front and center and in larger font and it's smaller around the sides. There's one manuscript uh, that we photographed in 2015 at the National Library of Greece that has a cruciform commentary throughout almost all of it. That means you've got biblical text, and then in the margin, you've got a cross that's filled with words of a commentator. Mm. And the cross is sometimes, well, it, it changes its size, and it even changes the size of the letters so that the scribe can get the comment on that biblical text in that cross commentary section. Wow. You think about how long it took him to figure this out, or her, could have been a woman to do this, when today it would be easier, but still it would, it would be a big challenge today for us to do that. This crime's doing it on the fly almost. It's just the, 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 what they put into these manuscripts is so significant. And let me just I'll, I'll finish with, um, with this one story, and then I'm going to shift gears and tell you two other reasons. All right. So uh, in 2016, I read a manuscript. It was uh, a lectionary, which is selections from portions of the New Testament that were read in the churches at uh, special days. And at the end of this, the scribe wrote a colophon or his own notes. And every once in a while, you get these really personal notes by the scribes. And he said, this is written by um, uh, Andrew, the calligrapher and sinner. And he goes on and describes when he did, he did it on Friday in February 1079. Uh, now, we, we, we know all that. And then at the end of this, he says, the hand that wrote this is rotting in the grave, but the words will stand till the fullness of times. Wow. I was reading this manuscript a thousand years later. Wow. That's and beautiful. the hand had definitely rotted in the grave, 
but the words were lasting another millennium. Easy to read. We need to preserve scripture and not just digitally preserve it, but preserve it because each one is somebody's devotion to the Lord. Uh, a lot of more done by secular uh, scribes, but that was in earlier centuries. Uh, but uh, you think about this, and you think about the devotion they have. When I read each each one of these manuscripts, I am so impressed. I learn new things every time, from little things to big things about what the scribes did to really do this well. They used color. That when the printing press came out, color was dead for another five hundred years, almost. You know, and they used color to help your memory. Mm. different colors would do one thing other colors to heighten how important something is it's just amazing what they do um, so uh, the second reason is just just even if these were not Christian documents we need to preserve our past and CSATM is a part of that much larger uh, project of digitally preserving all the documents that have gone before us that are uh, of any value whatsoever and then the final reason is for the text they contain that when we compare all these ancient versions and the Greek manuscripts and the church fathers' writings, that's what we need to look at to try to determine as best we can the wording of the original New Testament. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the great reasons. Yeah. Um, you, you have many adventures traveling around uh, to various uh, countries um, and digitizing, like we said, um, with uh, CSMTN, NTM. Um, what has been one of the wildest finds or adventures doing this so far? Because you have gone just about everywhere. You, uh, you know, I, I, I joke and and I, I, in my mind, I kind of picture you as the uh, Christian version of Indiana Jones going out with a whip and you know uh dangling over an edge, but i know that most of the work is done in in libraries and and at the likes but uh, what has been one of the wildest finds that you have found or one of the biggest eye-popping moments that that you've had well first of all um indiana jones has, has come up such a wonderful iconic <laughs> make-believe figure uh, in american lore and everybody you know you read some people who are doing different things this guy's the real indiana jones you know and, and uh no I'm not, and uh, I love the Indiana Jones movies, but Indiana Jones was an American imperialist thief. This thing belongs <laughs> in a museum. One of our Western museums, by the way, not with this original people. And uh, I mean, the, the British um, Museum is a monument to British imperialism in a lot of sense, what they're able to steal from other countries. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, we don't take anything except pictures. Yeah. yeah, and we don't take any of this stuff. So, <laughs> there's been a, a long history of uh, monasteries not trusting the West, in part because Indiana Jones is a composite figure based on three real people. I understand, one of whom was Constantine Tischendorf, who discovered Codex Sinaiticus, our oldest complete New Testament, uh, to this day by half a millennium, written in the fourth century at Saint Catherine's Monastery. Uh, at Mount Sinai, and uh, he brought it back to Russia. He was a German scholar sponsored by the Tsar, and he wrote a note, and I've seen the note, and I've got a copy of it. He wrote a note saying, I, I promise to bring this back when I'm done looking at it, but he wanted to take it back to Russia and examine it. 
And uh, when he got there, the czar said, uh, you're not giving it back to him. This is mine. Yeah. So it, it was, anyway, uh, but he's. We get believed for their, his, uh, and he was German. <laughs> yeah, but he was an, a German evangelical. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, wildest times, gosh, there's, there's been an awful lot of them that are just crazy. And it's not just even finding the manuscripts. It's a lot of it's just getting to some of these places. One of them was up in the mountains. Greece is 80% mountainous. And we spent a lot of time in Greece. I'm, I'll be going on my 33rd trip to Greece in December. And uh, we were up in the village of uh, Zagara. It, they have, it's, it's, a, it's a, one of the more recent towns. It was built in the uh, 1800s, early 1800s, I think. Uh, so <laughs> that's a recent town in Greece, you know. <laughs> but a uh, small place on the edge of a mountain road. Now, the mountain roads in Greece, uh, up until recently, did not have guardrails. Yeah, and uh, you have a sheer drop off. It's three thousand feet down if you slid off the road. And uh, in Zagara, we were there in the summer. No danger of, of falling off, but the roads were so narrow that if so, it, it can't handle two way traffic, so you have to find a place to get slightly off the road that has a little bit of a, a, a side area you can park, and you have to be really, really careful when somebody's trying to pass you. It's just, and sometimes you just have to back up for 50 yards or so. So we're there. And uh, after, there's some things I really, I really cannot say, but uh, we did photograph all the manuscripts at one summer. What happened then was uh, a couple of the guys came back in the winter, snowy winter, icy roads. They got up there. It was treacherous. And the librarian wanted to take them to lunch every day. Uh -huh. in her car and she um drove in a way that was a tad scary for them <laughs> and uh, uh i'm sure she was used to the roads but that was a pretty wild ride for these guys <laughs> there have been times where we photographed like at um the national parliament in athens uh during the day and at night uh you get riders throwing molotov cocktails at them. Mm -hmm. uh there have been times there i walked into tear gas uh, I've um, uh, been in uh, places where uh, I had to uh, speak a certain way where I had a large crowd of students that were ready to just destroy me um, because they, they surrounded me when I was uh, after lunch and I had I was heading towards the National Library uh, and uh, about 30 students surround me and they said whose side are you on? They were, they were having a vote that year for a new prime minister, and they wanted to get my opinion. Greece has two parties that you might not realize are significant and large. One is communists, and that's when I ran into tear gas. The communists got frisky one day, and uh, they got tear gas, and they had to depart. They were, every Wednesday is a, a, a protest day in Greece. Anybody can protest for anything. School teachers walk out. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's like the uh, Second Amendment for us is uh, protest day for the Greeks. You know, you, they, they have that right. They want to use it no matter what it does to anybody else. So I, I'm not saying that about the Second Amendment. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, the communists uh, were getting tear gassed, and we were working in the library. And uh, when we were about to go out front, we were told, no, you got to go out the back way because there's tear gas all over the place. 
So we went on the back and I said, I want to go see this. And so I, uh, my, my uh, colleague want, did not want to have anything to do with it. I'd get down close to it. And, and uh, it started affecting me. He said, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. My eyes, oh, we got to leave. You know, I, I kind of enjoyed the smell, you know. It was, it was, <laughs> uh, I got tear gas later time, and no, it's not fun. I, that was a much smaller, a bigger dose. But uh, we've been in places where the roads, as I said, are, are terribly treacherous. We've been in places that are hostile to us. Uh, libraries where you've got uh, Muslims and communists in a, a Soviet bloc country where they don't want you to be there. It's only the director of the library that wants you to be there. Uh, there's, there's just been uh, amazing places that we've been to. And uh, I, I believe with, with Calvin that I am immortal until the moment God has decreed that I should die. Mm. And of course, if I don't do stupid things or test the Lord, <laughs> then I'm going to die exactly when he wants me to die. You know, so... Uh, I, I'm not afraid about those things. I'm going to a Middle East country this next month that is very hostile to Christians. I can't tell you which one. And uh, you know, we've been we've been in places like that. So there, I, there's a lot of stories. Uh, in fact, I'm starting to do videos of my stories that we've. This is something you might want to advertise. Uh, we're going to have we have a thing called Circle of Friends at CSNTM. Circle of Friends is those who contribute at least $25 a month. And uh, they will be privy to one of my stories every quarter. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we haven't made them yet, but I've told them for so many years. And just yesterday, I spent 20 minutes with one of the staff members who's going to be doing the videos. And we came up with 30 stories. Wow. I said, well, that's, that doesn't even scratch the surface. How about this and this and this? So um, I, I, I know I tend to wander, but Cut out the stuff that is wandering, if you would. Uh, but I, I, in fact, I don't even know what the question was. I probably went way off. <laughs> no, that was it. Was uh, we, we were just checking to see you know, what was one of the wildest. But that is that is amazing. That is uh, you know that's doing a lot just to you know make sure that the word of God is is preserved. So uh, we yeah. your institute recently um, verified uh, P oxy fifty five seventy five. Uh, yeah. which is a second and third century uh, papyrus containing quotes from Matthew 6, Luke 12, and um, one of the uh, apocryphal writings, the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, can right. you give us details um, of that find? And, and also, uh, what are the implications of this? Uh, you know, that's always exciting anytime. And, and these are quotations. We, we realize that, but... Um, you know, it's it's exciting just to find that and have it verified and absolutely the accuracy too. Those are always exciting things. Well, the Museum of the Bible, which is now in Washington D.C., they had a thing. It's owned by Steve Green of Hobby Lobby, and he started before that a thing called Green Scholars Initiative, where uh, different scholar mentors were assigned different papyri or manuscripts to um, figure out what to decipher them, figure out the date, uh, everything they can about it, and get them published. And I was assigned this one. The, uh, the scholar in charge was Jeff Fish at Baylor University. 
And he wanted to give that to me because he thought it was the most significant and the most challenging. Now, I wasn't going to work on it by myself, but each one of us had to get students. So this was 2011 when this was assigned to me. We saw the pictures at first. We asked for the actual manuscript to come. I, I got eight students to work with me for a whole year. We put in well over a thousand hours of research uh, on this thing. It's it's a small fragment, you know. It's like one inch wide by four inches long. It's just it's really tiny. Mm-hmm. But uh, we saw the pictures that they had sent us, and we said we need to see the actual manuscript. So they brought it down my career, uh, insured it for a very very large amount of money, and. Uh, at least six figures yeah. uh, and we we photographed it with our equipment which we thought was a little bit better and and we had that manuscript in our hands for about a week and then sent it back but uh, that was uh, 11 12 years ago that we started on this we worked on it for a long time we were able to decipher all of the text except for one or two places where it's just too smudgy but uh, it, we knew at first that this has matthew's gospel it starts out with that it's actually from the Sermon on the Mount about uh, worries. And so on the front part of it says, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to fill in the, the blanks here, but it says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will uh, wear. For I tell you, unless you fast from the world, you will never find the kingdom. And unless you, and then we don't know what it says, the world. So there's some interesting differences. Uh, and then you've got... Uh, the father and then something about the birds uh how and your heavenly father feeds them you therefore and we don't know what goes on from there but then uh, consider the lilies uh how they grow is in uh, the backside it speaks about solomon and his glory the grass which dries up and is thrown in the oven and then you've got some other things which it's just partial words here or words without a lot of these things i've just given you um I, I can send you a picture with this English text in it for you. That'll give you a good sense. Uh, but uh, there were three of us who ended up uh, editing it. And we knew it had Matthew 6. This is the oldest manuscript in the world with a sermon on that. Mm. It's, in fact, I think the oldest manuscript of Matthew. It's not 2nd and 3rd century. It's either 2nd century or early 3rd century. Mm. But what Every one of us did, the eight students and I, we all came to the conclusion independently of each other, this is probably late second century, possibly early third, but we we were more comfortable calling it late second. Now, Jeff Fish took over this project, and Mike Holmes took over this project in 2015 when Season 10 was digitizing manuscripts at the National Library of Greece. That was a two-year project that cost us $800,000. We trained 44 people to do the digitization, 150,000 images. And I was in Greece 100 days a year to uh, prepare these manuscripts for photography. It was great fun, but I couldn't do anything else for the next two years. So um, I turned in that draft and Mike and Jeff finished it out. In the meantime, what happened was it was discovered that the Museum of Bible did not really own this because it was sold to them by somebody who had stolen it. Oh, my goodness. And so that was that big fracas. Another one of these things that was stolen was uh, the so-called first century mark that I spoke about in my second debate with uh, Ehrman because I was encouraged by um, the, the, the guy who um, had it or, or knew of it 
he said, uh, he's talked to the leading papyrologist in the world. The guy says, definitely, it's first century. When actually he had changed his mind even before I was told that it's definitely first century. And, and this guy knew it. But um, uh, it ended up being a late second century fragment of Mark. Uh, the guy who sold it was also the guy who was the world's leading papyrologist. By giving it an early date, he's going to get more money. <laughs> and uh, he sold it illegally. Uh, uh, the uh, Museum of the Bible folks have the receipt, and uh, they are suing him for, I think, $8 million for all the stuff they uh, he sold to them, which they had to give back. Wow. So at the same time, because of the work we had done on that, the Egypt Exploration Society, which was publishes the Oxyrhynchus papyri, said, you guys might may, may publish this. There's another one, the manuscript, the very first one in this new series of the Oxyrhynchus papyri that uh, was done by a former intern of mine and another student, uh, an early fragment of a portion of Romans. This is another one of those that was stolen, but because of the work that had gone into it, he was able, they were allowed to finish this. So this manuscript, besides Matthew and Luke, does have a portion of the Gospel of Thomas in it. We didn't know that until one of the students started to look at uh, uh, what's called Comparando, which is other papyrus manuscripts that seem to have the same lettering, same ligatures, same line spaces, how many lines you have, how, what the space is. There's a number of ways where we know about the evolution of books that they would change from this size to this size. This size only occurs in the second century. This size occurs in third to fifth. And in terms of the letters, there's a lot of things that we can determine pretty, pretty accurately within about 100 years, sometimes 50 years, like in the case of this manuscript. Uh, and I looked at uh, well over a thousand papyri, comparanda papyri to determine. I said, man, this clearly is this. I gave a bunch of examples. And what happened then was this one student, Rory Crowley, started doing Comparano by looking at the very first volume of the Oxyrhynchus papyri in 1898. And he looked at Papyrus 1. It said, uh, an unknown gospel was the title. Mm. Later it was uh, learned that that was part of the gospel of Thomas. And it happened to be Logion 27, or section 27. And that's what this is quoting in our manuscript. And he just stumbled across this two weeks before we gave a presentation at Oxford University. And I was, I told uh, Jeff and Mike, the two other editors, um, we found out that this has Thomas in it. And they said, oh, you can't put that into your presentation. Let's keep that hush-hush until we can get it published. So now it's out there. Wow. And there is huge buzz all over the internet. You look up uh, P. Oxy 5575 or 5575 Gospel of Thomas, you'll see wild things on there. I put out a blog on my site, danielbwallace.com, and talked about it and said, now the wild speculations are going to come out. Yeah. And they have come out on both sides. Some have said, this is absolute proof that the Bible uh, text has not changed. Well, it's not exactly the wording from Matthew or Luke. 
And uh, some have said, well, it's quotations of Thomas are much closer than it is Matthew and Luke. Others have said, no, it's almost exactly what Matthew and Luke have, but not what Thomas has in this other fragment. So it, it, it's all over the map. And people are saying this should be part of our New Testament. Others are saying that Matthew and Luke were written in the second century after the Gospel of Thomas. It's just loony speculations that come out with no evidence. But uh, we want to state what we have, and, and my uh, blog site will tell about that. Also, uh, CSNTM has put out a press release on this. And uh, it, after the show, if you'd like, I can send you some links that you can maybe uh, post for people to see. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, and uh, and I appreciate that and, and the work that you did on that and, and are doing. Um, now... As we look at at um, you know everything that you've been doing with uh, CSMTN um, uh, and and just uh, moving into that, um, like you said, you retired uh, from from DTS and now you're full time into that. So there is no sitting for you, that's for sure. <laughs> um, uh, can you give us a little background on on uh, you know the Center for uh, Study of New Testament script, manuscripts? Um, how did this ministry get started? Because uh, I'm sure you didn't just say, you know what, I need another full-time job at the same time as being a full-time <laughs> <Right>. professor. <laughs> yeah, and for the first several years, it was full-time but no pay. So <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we were we were just a very young organization. Started in in 2002, and it it came because of the con a confluence of two uh, technical advances. Uh, OCR optical character recognition was really starting to do some good work, where that. I, I, I thought I learned about OCR with uh, Apple's Newton and uh, the Palm Pilot. This is before your time, but you could write out text on these screens and it would convert it to printed text. Oh, that's terrific. And I thought if it can do this with English, it should be able to do it with any alphabetic text. And so OCR getting the capacity to read these images um, manually, I mean, uh, machine read them, I thought would speed up the process of getting a full database of what all the manuscripts have to say. The other, th the other thing that developed was digital photography. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to get a digital camera until it could reproduce uh, the quality of image that you'd get in an 8x10 portrait. Well, that came about in the early 2000s. So I, I started the nonprofit organization Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and you can remember its name or its initials if you know who C.S. Lewis is. You got the first down, and you watched Wizard of Oz. You know who Auntie M is, C.S. Auntie M. So uh, that should help you remember. But my students today haven't seen the Wizard of Oz, so it doesn't help them at all. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I started with the initial purpose of making sure every single New Testament manuscript would be digitized. We knew we wouldn't be able to do all of them, but we were the first to do that. And we are the largest organization to digitize Greek New Testament manuscripts. We're not a very big organization. There's eight full-time people, but uh, we've got world-class equipment and we're on our seventh or eighth protocol of how to do this. We're I will, I will claim that our pictures are as good as, if not better, and if not significantly better than any that are produced anywhere else in the world, including the Vatican, British Library, 
we, we just do a better job. This is this is what we've been doing for the last 21 years, you know. And, uh, we now have a 150 megapixel camera. We had a four megapixel camera to start with, state of the art, cost a thousand bucks. And think of the megapixels as for every megapixel you have, uh, that's how that, that equals a thousand dollars in the cost. And that's true of our large camera today. <laughs> so we started it. I started I writing the places. There's one megapixel. <laughs> I, remember, yeah, right. I remember my wedding pictures and uh, <laughs> we looked like a video game. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah I'd say megapixel. I meant megabyte. Yeah. So, yeah. so it, it works out that way today. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, we started photographing at the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Münster, Germany, where our standard Greek New Testament is published. Mm -hmm. And they had 22 actual manuscripts. They have microfilms of over 80% of them, but they owned 22 manuscripts. And we got to shoot those to start with. It took about six weeks with painstakingly slow cameras that uh, you had to have plenty of light. And it would take 90 seconds to upload an image onto the uh, computer so we could see whether it was good enough or we needed to reshoot it. And those early days, it was pretty primitive for us. Now it'll take maybe a second to upload a picture that's uh, one gigabyte in size, wow. one gigabyte. So that's that's what we started. Then after Munster, we started to expand into other places. I traveled all over Europe in 2002 and three. I was on sabbatical with my wife and uh, discovered manuscripts at a couple of other places and uh, got permission to photograph others, came back, uh, started photographing a, a private collection, and then we we got permission to go to Constantinople in 2004. Where we uh, this is where the Ecumenical Patriarchate, where the Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew himself resides, it's the equivalent of the Vatican for Eastern Orthodoxy, and uh, we photographed their 30 oldest manuscripts, 30 most important manuscripts. It took us three weeks to do that. And we were working 22 hours a day. There were three of us. Six hours at the monastery. But at home, we had to, this is, again, way back then, we had to burn DVDs. And we bought gold-plated DVDs that came out of Mitsui, is the company, in Italy. And uh, they would cost us $1 a piece. If you bought them as an individual, it would be 10 bucks a piece. They were gold plated, so they'd last longer than others. That's yeah. we said, this is the word of God, we gotta ensure it as much as we can. And I brought a suitcase jammed full with hundreds of these DVDs. Mm -hmm. And we used to buy them by lots of a thousand, as I said. Um, and uh, we had to burn all the images and give the library its copies and make two copies for us. So someone has to uh, every time you get the ding that goes off in the burner, you have to get up and do that so we'd get sleepless nights you know and we'd rotate i never had to do that part i was i was the boss so i got to sleep but, <laughs> um, but it was uh, long days a lot of work yeah. and um, amazing work we found our oldest manuscript there too which is a majuscule that means it's it's written in capital letters and it's number 0322 of all the greek majuscules that we have of the new testament they're very rare and it's a, it's a palimpsest. That means it's a parchment manuscript where it's been all the letters have been scraped off, the words have been scraped off, 
and then somebody writes on top of it. And uh, the palimpsest, by definition, is older than what's on top, this yeah. time by several hundred years. And we could read just a little bit of it, sometimes just two letters here, one letter there, and we had to work hard to find out where it was from, but it was two leaves in this, in this big book. It was just the last two leaves, Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6. Mm. And uh, early manuscript of, of Mark. So really, this is really exciting stuff, but that's how we started. Then we started to uh, publish, and we published, for example, the Chester Beattie papyri, P45, P46, P47. Those three cover most of the books of the New Testament, nine of Paul's letters, the Gospels and Acts and Revelation. Now, no papyrus is complete, but these three had quite a bit of material. The one in Revelation was 10 leaves or 20 pages. The one on the Gospels and Acts, P45, 32 leaves. And for Paul, for those nine letters, where you've got about 80% of each page still intact, it has 86 of an original 104 leaves. All these are dated in the third century, some maybe as early as 200. Remarkable find back in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And we got to re-photograph those. We have 90-year-old photographs. We got there to photograph them, and we published them with Hendrickson in a beautiful facsimile volume so that scholars can have that and examine it. And anybody can buy it from our website for 300 bucks. It's $100 off the price. Um, but uh, it's really a magnificent facsimile. It's good for libraries. I'd recommend it for pastors. Uh, so if a church wants to buy this for their pastor, man, get it from us. Uh, and I sign these. Everyone that goes out from the center, I, I sign. Uh, but that's, that's one of the things we've done. We're publishing articles. We're getting uh, dissertations published. We're doing a lot of things. Uh, that are part of the research stage. Our ultimate goal is to try to get back to the original wording as closely as we possibly can as being the, being the ones who uh, provide the images that other scholars need to determine that for their Greek New Testaments. And discovering manuscripts, we discovered over 75 in our 20 years of existence. That's more than any other institute in the 21st century. Yeah. And, um, and then working together to try to recover the wording of the original. That's amazing. That's amazing. More powerful to you. Um, well, um, we're only going to, we don't, we, we want to be, um, you know, aware of your time. So we're going to. No, you don't. This has been two hours already. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I told you I'd, I'd talk long. So Yeah. So we'll probably make this, um, you know, in, in editing. So people will hear this after editing, but we'll we'll probably make this a two-part series for everybody um, as That's they good. or listen. Um, but well, this, these are the final two. So um, if someone right now is listening and and they're struggling with their faith, uh, they watched um, or read the Da Vinci Code, right? Because there is that big thing going on back in the early two thousands. Um, or, um, you know, they, they've read, uh, Bart Ehrman's book, um, or been to a lecture or a secular professor has brought up all these, you know, uh, variants, the discussion we had earlier. Um, what would you say to encourage them in their faith? What would you tell them right now as they're sitting here and they're listening and they're, they're hearing what you're saying and the discoveries that, um, you've made. Uh, with your ministry, um, and you're telling them, hey, listen, there's no doctrinal 
deviations. You know, nothing goes against. What what would you want to finalize or wrap up with them? You know, to to encourage them in their in their walk. Great great question. There used to be a guy who was on the radio who'd do a five minute presentation every day called Paul Harvey. And uh, have you guys heard of him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I used to listen to him all the time. The rest of the story. The rest of the story, yeah. And now, and that's the rest of the story. Now for the rest of the story, you know, those kinds yeah. of things. Um, and so what I tell people is when they hear somebody who is a secular scholar, or especially those that have some kind of vendetta against the Christian faith, um, they are not telling the whole story. Mm. And it may be that everything they say is true in terms of the evidence. I mean, if I came in, and, and this is what I've done in my lectures before, I say, okay, so it looks like we have a million and a half textual variants. Isn't that great? Let's close in prayer. And everybody laughs nervously, like, what the heck has just happened? And I give the best <laughs> arguments I can to show that, gee, we've got some <laughs> problems here. And I said, now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. And here's four ways we're going to attack it. And when they come out, what they understand is that what we have in our hands in every respect is the veritable word of God. We don't necessarily have every word exactly like the original. Translations are translations. They're not the original. Only the original is inspired. But we have the word of God in this, and we can take that to the bank in all major issues. The text is settled. And in the vast majority of particulars, it's settled. Bart Ehrman was asked one time if he and Bruce Metzger were locked in a room until they would hammer out where they agreed and where they disagreed and what the uh, new original New Testament would say. He said, we would come out with no more than 50 differences between us. Hmm. Bruce Metzger was probably the finest textual critic of the 20th century and a very fine evangelical. And he was Bart Ehrman's mentor. 50 differences? One and a half million variants? 50 differences in their text? That tells you it's these numbers that get thrown around that they really are meaningless. You know, if I, if I hand wrote a manuscript right now and somebody thought it was old, count the variants. There was one that was actually a, a late 19th century manuscript that some scholars thought uh, was earlier, and they, they put it in the Nestle Allen 27th Greek New Testament, which some of you may, may know about. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we discovered it was a forgery. And so in the Net Bible, we never mentioned it because it was a forgery, and we knew that. And it was taken out of the Nestle 28. But that would be a late manuscript that has new variants. Yeah. So every, every single time there's another manuscript discovery, there's going to be variants that are unique to that manuscript. But the reality is all of our manuscripts agree with each other at least 95% of the time. So that's a really, really high agreement. And that 5% goes into the differences of spelling differences and all the rest, and only a very, very tiny percent of that, you know, one-tenth of 1%, one two-tenths of 1% of all the texture variants really are meaningful and viable. But they don't affect our beliefs. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you a couple examples. In Romans 5.1, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. That's what it is in most of our translations. Or, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. 
The difference between those two readings is a single letter in Greek. It's either the short O or the long O. It's either Echomen, we have, or Echomen, let us have. In the first century, both the long O and the short O were pronounced the same. Paul's dictating this letter to uh, Tertius, uh, and uh, maybe, I, I, I in fact think this, I think Tertius heard the long O and wrote it down. And Paul, we know from several of his letters, takes the pen from the, from the uh, amanuensis or the secretary and reads through that manuscript and authenticates the letter as from him. He's not going to authenticate it if he has not read it. So as he reads through it, he goes at Romans 5.1, I suspect. He said, oops, Tertius wrote Omega. I should have clarified it's an Omicron. So he crosses that out, puts the Omicron on top. That, I think, is how we get those two variants. And uh, other scholars have felt the same way that Mesker thinks that Earl Ellis and some others have said it probably happened at that very stage of Paul dictating to his secretary. Wow. But here's the thing. Is it true that we have peace with God? Absolutely. Is it also true that we should have peace with God? Yes, in different senses. I mean, when he says uh, to the Corinthians, be reconciled to God, he's talking to Christians. What does he mean? Well, reconciliation is a state of getting saved, or it means you've sinned so much, the fellowship is just getting ripped apart, and you've got to come to repentance, you know? So Paul can say both of these things, and both of them can be true. What it affects, though, is what it means in that passage and how it affects the rest of the chapter. And I think chapters 5 through 8 are affected by which reading you go with. Uh, so th those, those are the kinds of things we have. Um, I'll give another illustration. And uh, let this be the, the, the last one. I, you know, I could go on for <laughs> hundreds of them. But I have, you know, we have our text critical notes in the net Bible. We discuss a lot of these texture variants uh, and, and all the important ones. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, uh, Great is the mystery of godliness. And he goes on and he says, um, "Who he, he who was manifested in flesh, or who was manifested in flesh, who, not as a, uh, an interrogative, but the one who was manifested in the flesh, who was believed on in the world, uh, seen by angels, etc., etc. The word who in Greek is O-S, hos. There's another word that is found in later manuscripts, and it's the word theos, the word God. But the way theos was written was it was a theta, which was capital letter, round, just like the Omicron, and it has an S on the end, just like um, uh, hosta. So Omicron sigma or theta sigma is what you have. And in, in theta sigma, they would have the first and last letter of the divine name and put a bar over it to say, don't read this as a word, read it as an abbreviation for something special. And so the only difference between Haas and Thaas was a bar in the middle of that Omicron and a bar over both letters. That's how Thaas arose, I'm convinced. The Latin has, which was, uh, re, uh, which, which was um, uh, manifested uh, and that uses a pronoun that cannot be uh, identical with um, the, the word for God in Latin. So that tells us that very early on, it was copied a manuscript that had the relative pronoun. Mm -hmm. Now, you get 
King James only advocates to say, it says God here, and you guys who use modern translations are denying the deity of Christ. How is it possible to claim that we're denying the deity of Christ if all it does is removes the name of God but says who was manifest in the flesh? We're denying an explicit God statement about Jesus, but we are not denying the deity of Christ. And uh, it's the older manuscripts that have Haas. The evidence is overwhelming, I believe. And yet, what's affected? Nothing is affected by this. The deity of Christ is so firm. It's even seen in this verse. Yeah. Even if you go with Haas. I mean, he was manifest in the flesh. What does that even mean? He's not a normal human. You know, you, you, you've got a lot of things in there that tell us he is God in the flesh. And uh, so what we may be losing, maybe losing is explicit variant uh, that would affirm explicitly the deity of Christ. But you have other places. D.A. Carson famously wrote in his book um, on uh, the King James Version debate, I think was the title of the book, written several years ago. He's got a page in there comparing modern translations with the King James and where they explicitly affirm the deity of Christ. And uh, the New World Translation is thrown in there every single time it denies it. All these other modern translations done by a variety of groups have it a number of times. And the NIV had the most, I believe. And the King James was a distant second. Mm -hmm. So when they claim, you know, you're getting rid of the deity of Christ, actually, the King James blew it in a couple of passages. And there's wording differences in others that they don't have the awesome modern translations do. So... Anyway, that, that gives you a sense of this, I hope. But I would tell that person, get the whole story. Never be afraid to pursue the truth. Yeah. But pursue it by listening to people on both sides of the evidence. If all you're going to do is listen to these heretics, these uh, antagonists to the Christian faith, you're definitely going to get one side of the story. Listen to responsible scholars. You don't want to get some flaming um, pastor who pounds the pulpit and says, these guys are all going to hell and here's what's wrong with their arguments. That person is almost as bad as the left-wing scholars <laughs> because he's so biased in his opinions. He refuses to do any kind of research. He just wants you to believe because he's uh, almost coaxing you, almost forcing you to believe. Yeah. That's not, not helpful either. All right, one more question, uh, Dr. Wallace. We love to ask this question to every all of our guests on the podcast is, other than the Bible, whose writings or teachings has influenced your life or encouraged you the most? So you gotta, you got to take out your net Bible, too. <laughs> that does well, it's a Bible, so, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I thought about this question, and I would have to say, I'll give a broad answer, and then I'll give a couple of specifics. I thoroughly enjoy really good commentaries. I think there's a number of ways I can tackle that question, but it's a really, really good question. I could talk about, in general, the fact that I, I love reading a good exegetical commentary. By exegetical, I mean it's dealing with the original text. It's talking about textual variants. It's talking about the, the syntax. It's talking about the historical background and the interpretation and giving the other interpretations that are out there and giving arguments for its own and arguments for the others and coming to its conclusion. One of the very, very finest commentaries to do this well is by Cranfield, his two-volume Cranfield. 
in the ICC series on Romans. Uh, it's, it was hailed as the finest commentary on Romans ever written uh, by many people. And I think today it, it still is. Uh, it's also extremely devotional. It's, it's all this technical stuff in there, but it's really, really uh, devotional stuff. I just, I just go when I want to exalt the Lord when I read that commentary. So a good exegetical commentary. Uh, Harold Honer's on Ephesians is unbelievable. And there's, there's others, I mean, on every book of the Bible, of course, but uh, uh, Bruce Waltke, his stuff on the Proverbs is amazing. Um, I like commentaries on, on every book. But I'll tell you uh, another couple of books that I really have found spiritually uh, encouraging to me a lot. And one is Leon Morris's Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. He, this was his doctoral thesis, I believe. And he goes through all the main terms that are related to uh, what happened at the cross to us. I had to read that in uh, my soteriology class in the master's program. He's got a lot of Greek and Hebrew in there, and we all knew Greek and Hebrew um, when you only had students who, could, who had to take Greek and Hebrew. So that was an upper-level theology class. That was so amazing. I'd get home and I'd say, oh, my gosh, this is wonderful. Look at what the Lord did for us. And, and every day I'm just, just thanking the Lord for how amazing salvation is. It's, it, it'll blow your mind when he goes through terms like reconciliation and justification, everything else. There's, I think there's 33 different words that describe our salvation. And, uh, uh, it, it's, it, you know, the, you can't come up with enough metaphors and descriptions to tell us what happens. Yeah. So we're going to learn more when we get to heaven. But that that has just blessed my socks off. It's all worn out. I had to get another one. But then uh, Leon Morris's commentaries, they're always solid exegetical commentaries, and they're always devotional as well. Mm. It just had a heart to, to move scholarship to uh, devotion. Really, really a fine job. And finally, I would say, putting Jesus in his place mm. and the incarnate Christ and his critics, which is not yet out, but I'm finishing the manuscript, reading the manuscript, writing the endorsement this week by Bowman and Kamashevsky. Uh, as I was reading through this latest edition, I just said, this makes me want to worship the Lord. I, I'm, I'm getting a sneak peek into the Holy of Holies. Mm. And look at his glory. Wow. I mean, if scholarship doesn't reach your heart, then it's neck up Christianity and it's dead. Uh, and that's the problem with so many scholars is they just want to love the Lord with their mind. And then what happens is they take on arguments by others just with their mind. 99% of those who have turned liberal came out of an evangelical or fundamentalist background. Mm -hmm. And they thought their own mind could be the best weapon against that. Mm -hmm. um, if they are not walking with the Lord, if they are not communing with the Spirit, and recognizing that we have another um, argument on our half, namely that we have a relationship to the living one. It's an existential relationship we have to the, to the uh, resurrected Christ. That needs to be part and parcel of us. That's why John says in 1 John 2, um, you all know, he, he's talking about um, their um, anointing that they have. And his argument is, here's these heretics who have come along, but you know this because you have a spirit. 
so that's the other thing I would say is don't suffocate the voice of the spirit when you're, you're thinking about these issues. Romans 8, 16, I'll finish with this, really looms large in this whole thing. The spirit himself bears, bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children or the children of God. Well, he's not just bearing witness with our spirit, like, oh, we need his testimony and ours. That, that gives two witnesses that means the truth is there. Everywhere that where the spirit is involved in his testimony, it's never on the same plane as humans. It means he bears witness to our spirit. Mm -hmm. That is happening now. It's present tense. If we don't listen to the spirit in our lives, if we don't have a heart for the gospel, for the lost, for our Lord, then our scholarship is wood, hay, and stubble. Amen. And so if you can nurture both of those, which all Christians need to do, make sure their heart is connected to their head. Uh, that's the best defense against uh, these outsiders. Amen. Amen. That was fantastic. Well, Dr. Wallace, um, again, we want to go ahead and say thank you for uh, joining us on the Transform 365 podcast. We're going to have the links to uh, CSMTM uh, in in the bio, and you, people will be able to see those and uh, go and, and read more. Um, and uh, again, you've uh, blessed our lives just uh, in your scholar uh, scholarly way and writing and um, just in our own study and having to go through, um, you know, just, you know, I, I would say uh, we're able to parse a verb. But as you said, uh, you know, if if we are able to parse a verb, uh, but we don't have the love of God in us and we don't have it, um, you know, taking that long distance of 18 inches from head to heart knowledge, um, then it's useless to us. So we appreciate that and your heart for the Lord and the heart for the lost. Amen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for letting me uh, be on your podcast. Thank you for joining the Transform 365 podcast, a ministry dedicated to helping you grow in relationship to Christ. If you want to know more, find us at transform365.com or on our church website, www.swcc.org, located in Miami, Florida. Until next time, remember... The only work in grace is to let grace work in you. God bless.